Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. I think all of us have a script for how we see our lives playing out with hopes and dreams of what we want to be and what we want to do. I'll never forget my firstborn daughter's preschool graduation and all the cute little boys and cute little girls were gathered here up on a stage and there they stood and they were so excited to answer one big question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And as you can imagine, some of the little boys were saying, I want to be a fireman. I want to be a football player. Some little girls were saying, I want to be a, a teacher and a ballerina, and, and so on. They went down the line. And since our last name is Walter, my little girl was at the end of the line. And finally, it was her turn. And she said proudly, not one, but three things. I want to be a mommy and a doctor and an ice cream trucker. Who wouldn't want to be that, right? Now, it sounds like a pretty full life, and when we're young, we have aspirations of what we want to become, but as we get older, the, the script for how we see our lives playing out gets a little more complicated, and we've got specific, certain expectations. We would rarely ever say this out loud, but the script in our minds includes things like when we get married, how many kids we want to have, where we want to live, all the money we want to make, all the experiences that we want to have, and all the places we want to go. But it doesn't take long before we realize that life doesn't go as we planned. And for many of us, the minute we're handed something that seems to depart from the script, it unravels us. In some cases, completely derails us especially if we feel like it's something done to us without our permission, without anyone consulting us. We feel uprooted and upended, taken away from the life we knew that was so comfortable and so familiar, and now forced to reckon with the challenges of life we have in front of us. Could be a number of things, right? Illness, an accident, infertility, depression, chronic pain, divorce, even death. Anything that seemed to go off script into a totally different direction and we're completely shaken by it. Three years ago, that happened for me and my family. I was pastoring in small town Iowa, and dissension broke out amongst the leadership of our church, primarily over COVID and political issues. I was trying to lead out of love, but was accused of leading out of fear. So after many meetings and much heartache, I felt forced to resign. There's a lot 
more to the story, as you can imagine. But without a church family and without a job, we had to sell our house quickly and move. And God in his providence and grace led us here to Des Moines. And it was an incredibly hard transition, but he has been so faithful and so kind to us and our kids. Not too long ago, I was sitting on an airplane, uh, traveling to a conference, and I was reading a book, and one paragraph just completely leaped off the page for me. I was reading Eugene Peterson's book, Running with the Horses, where he writes, exile is traumatic and terrifying. Our sense of who we are is very much determined by the place we're in and the people we are with. When that changes violently and abruptly, who are we? And I remember thinking, that's it. That's how I feel. That's what we went through. It was a form of exile. That one word encapsulated so much for me. I'm sure if we were to go around the room today and hear one another's stories, at some point all of us have experienced something like this in our lives, a sudden dramatic change, a broken dream, a hope dashed, and we don't know what to do with ourselves. It's completely disorienting. We don't know how to live off script, but we're not the first to experience this ever since Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden, God's people have experienced some form of exile. We see this pattern repeated all throughout the Bible. Most notably, the Israelites who were taken into exile in 587 BC, forced to leave Jerusalem, ripped out of their homeland, and deported to Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar's rule. Now, in this instance, similar to Adam and Eve, it was in response to their sin in unfaithfulness to the covenant that God had made with them. But many times in Scripture and in our own lives as well, we're given something that seems to go off script without any fault of our own. And we're forced into a new way of life. Just like the Israelites, we didn't choose for this to happen, but now we do have a choice in how we're going to respond. In the midst of exile, the prophet Jeremiah wrote a letter to God's people for that very purpose, to encourage them how to respond, how to live in light of what happened to them. In essence, how to burn the script and live into a better story. So if you've got a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to the book of Jeremiah. If you don't have one with you, that's okay. The words will be up there on the screen in back of me. I want to read Jeremiah chapter 29. Verses 4 to 11. This is the word of God. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, 
For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now notice this letter from Jeremiah is really a letter from God himself. And I see four things here that he's telling them to do in this time of exile. So here's the first one. Remember where your security and your identity is found. Remember where your security and your identity is found. Look at verse four again with me. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, in some ways, it's really difficult for us to put ourselves in the place of the original readers here. They had seen some horrible violence and murder and were ripped out of their homes and made to live in a city 700 miles away. That's hard to relate to, but in a way, their exile is an extreme form of what we all experience in times of sudden change. In times where we're put in a place we don't want to be. To put it bluntly, we don't know what to do with ourselves. We don't. Our security is is totally shaken. We feel out of sorts. Our sense of belonging is gone. Not only that, our identity is shaken. Our sense of self is shattered. Questions like, who am I now? Where do I fit now? circulate on and on through our minds. And God knows this. And so he gently reminds us of where our security and where our identity is found. Notice how he starts this letter with, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Both of these phrases are are loaded with meaning and repeated for emphasis all throughout this letter and all throughout the book of Jeremiah. So what do they mean? Let's start with the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts literally means Yahweh of angelic armies. Yahweh. God's personal name for himself. I am who I am. I am the self-existent one, the absolute one, the eternal one. There is no one like me. No one but me. Yahweh of angelic armies. Now, that phrase, the Lord of hosts, is actually repeated 71 times in this book alone. So Jeremiah was emphasizing this to these people. What does it mean? It means that he is the king of glory, surrounded by his vast army of angels, governing the entire world. No one and no thing is a match for the Lord of hosts. Think about it what that would have meant to these people in exile. And think about what it means for you and me. God is saying, I am your strong protector. I am your sovereign Lord. I am your deepest security. And even though you can't see it, I'm surrounding you at all times. Reminds me of Elisha's servant in 2 Kings when a vast army was approaching them, and all they could do was panic. And Elisha then prayed, 
that God would open his servant's eyes to be able to see the Lord at all the angelic armies around him. And so the text goes on to say, behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. In times of exile and in times where we feel shaken, we need to ask for eyes to see. Lord, help me to see. Lord, give me spiritual eyes to see the unseen realities of your power and your presence in my life. And God often uses exile as a revealer to strip away everything that's getting in the way so we can see more clearly that our security and our identity is found in him alone. Our security and our identity. That's what the other name of God is getting at. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. That would have been a stark reminder for these people that God has made a covenant with them, a covenant promise to never stop doing them good, no matter what. In times of hardship, he would not bring them harm, but would give them hope. In Jeremiah 31, verse 3, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Hearing again that God is their God, the God of Israel, would have emboldened them and reminded them that no matter where they're located and what they're going through, God would always, always be there with them. So Jeremiah is telling the people of God to remember where their security and where their identity is found. It's not found in a place, it's found in a person, a personal God who has sent them into exile. Notice verse four again, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. It's not just Nebuchadnezzar who has sent you, but I I have sent you. That's hard to swallow. That's hard for us to understand. But these people are not in Babylon by accident, but by assignment from God. His sovereign hand had led them there. And we can trust that he has their good in mind and our good in mind as well. Which leads to our next point. Secondly, be fully present where God has placed you. Be fully present where God has placed you. Look at verses five to seven. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. That they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on his behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Notice how he's stacking up verbs here. Build and live, plant and eat, marry and multiply. In other words, settle in for the long haul. Put down roots, invest in this place. But let's, let's be honest here. If, if you've gone through a sudden and dramatic change, You're physically and emotionally exhausted. Some of you are even depressed, depleted, with not very much to give. 
Why? Because you're experiencing some form of trauma. You see, while the event happened outside of you, trauma is what's happening inside of you. And it's real. Some of you know this by experience. For a while, it feels like you're just trying to survive. And God knows this. Notice the verbs again, build and plant and multiply. They all take time. God is not a God who's in a hurry. He understands the process and he understands your story. So he's encouraging you. He's encouraging his people here. You're gonna be here for a while. In fact, we're gonna see 70 years. That's a lifetime. And as you adjust, don't be afraid to go all in. Throw yourself into where you find yourself. Be fully present where God has placed you. And in so doing, you'll be blessed. Look at verse 7 again. It says, But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That word welfare is repeated over and over again here, and it's the word shalom in the original language. It refers to this all-encompassing peace and wholeness. And so Jeremiah is saying that as you keep showing up, as you keep loving other people around you, They're going to be blessed, and you will be blessed. Notice this is not a call to being a Christian radical or weirdo in your workplace and community. This is a call to care about people as deeply and thoroughly as possible. I was reading an article recently that said that the happiest people in the world are those who love the most. Not surprising, right? Proverbs 11.25 says, those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. Or as Pastor Mike shared last week from the Beatitudes, happy are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So you want to be happy? Show mercy to others. One of the ways I've tried to apply this in my own life, each morning I pray, Jesus, help me join with you in what you're doing today. Jesus, help me to join with you in what you are doing today. I know you're ahead of me. You're bringing together people and circumstances and conversations, and I just want to join with you in what you're doing to be present all throughout the day. But I have to admit, it's been a slow, slow learning process for me. When we first moved here, we lived in a rental home. We didn't know, we weren't even sure how long we were going to live here in Des Moines. And, and I was, I was kind of on edge a lot, still am sometimes. And Jamie was like, my wife was like, let's put up some pictures and make it feel more like home here. And so we did that. And then we ended up buying a new painting that hung behind our table in the living room. And here's what it looks like. The name of the painting is called A New Path. And it became a visual reminder that God was doing a new thing in our lives. And though it hurt at times, we need to keep putting one foot in front of the other. We need to step into the new path that he had made for us. But I'm not going to lie. At times, the temptation was to pull back and to even think back to what I used to have. 
And that's where Jeremiah goes next with the third point. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by dreams of going back. Look at verses eight and nine. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, notice he's repeating himself again for emphasis, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So evidently there were false prophets who were claiming that the exile would end soon, that peace was just around the corner. Saying things like, you don't need to wait 70 years, it's only gonna be like two years, so don't worry. God will bring you out of this quickly. And it was all a lie. But for a hurting person who's missing home, that sounded way better than having to wait 70 years. Why? Because unknowns feel unsafe. Back there feels better than right here. Because back there was comfortable and familiar, and back there seemed to fit our script better. And when we begin to believe this message, self-pity starts to sink in. We feel sorry for ourselves. What is self-pity? Here's how I would define it. Self-pity is this self-centered feeling where we believe that we've suffered more than is fair or reasonable. I'll say that one more time. Self-pity is this self-centered, self-absorbed feeling where we believe that we've suffered more than is fair or reasonable. And these false prophets, they were, they were playing off of the people's self-pity and stirring the pot of discontent. And so it is today, both culturally and personally. I think we've seen this in our culture over the last decade. Many have felt a growing instability in our country. And with that instability, many have tried to call us back to, quote unquote, the good old days and reclaim the Christian America we supposedly had years ago, stirring the pot of discontent. We start then to believe that we're exiles in corrupt America and the old moral America becomes our home that we long to get back to. And we should not only feel sorry for ourselves and for the sad state of affairs, but to get angry and to fight for what we deserve. So culturally, we can seep into self-pity. And personally, we can be our own worst enemy. We can keep telling ourselves the same story over and over and over again and start to believe it. That my dreams and my plans have evaporated and the script of my life is ruined. So I might as well just sulk here and feel sorry for myself because this is not how I saw my life going. This is not where I thought I would be at this point in my life. And self-pity will gladly cozy up to you like a close friend who promises to stay with you in your loneliness and support you with reasons to feel sorry for yourself. And guys, when, when self-pity creeps in, God's love is pushed out. We become convinced we're victims instead of God's beloved children. In these times, we've got to remember that Jesus, he sympathizes with us. He understands. Think about this. He was the ultimate exile. 
as he left his home in heaven and came down to this earth to save us from our sin. And if anyone deserved to feel sorry for himself, it was Jesus. But on that last night, you remember that night before he went to the cross? Instead of going inward in self-pity, he moved outward and washed his disciples' feet. Like, how did he do that? How? John 13, verse 3, says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and washed his disciples' feet. In his hour of greatest need, Jesus remembered where his security and where his identity was found. And he was confident in the destiny that awaited him in heaven. And that freed him, that freed him to go and serve and love others. He knew there was a greater plan, a greater future, a greater hope that was coming. And he wanted to prepare his disciples for that future as well, to get their eyes off themselves and onto something much greater, which leads to the last point. Burn the script and live into a better story. Burn the script and live into a better story. Look at verses 10 and 11. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Notice this exile isn't permanent. God is preparing something. He's promising something. And one day it will be coming. The repetition of I will gives a sense of assurance to us, reassurance to us. God says, I will visit you. I will fulfill my promise to you. Verse 14 says, I will restore you. But why? Why will you do this? Verse 11 says, for, here's the reason why, I know the plans I have for you. I is emphatic here. For I, I know the plans I have for you. God is saying you don't know. I know. I know what I'm doing in your life. I've always known. I will bring to completion what I have started. I will fulfill what I have promised. I've got a plan for you. You can be assured of that. So trust me. Trust me. You can trust me. But typically, in so many Christian settings, including graduations, this verse has been interpreted to say something like this. God has big dreams for you, for your safety and your success, for your comfort and your prosperity. He's got a step-by-step plan to ensure your happiness now and always. But look at the context of this verse. That's not what he's saying. These people are in exile. They've been suffering a great deal and we're so far from home. And we can relate to this. Every one of us in this room, we can relate to this. Why? In the New Testament, the entire New Testament portrays Christians as spiritual exiles, sojourners here on earth, with a deep 
ache in our hearts to be home with Christ in heaven. So listen, the hope is, the firm expectation is that our true and lasting stability is waiting for us there. This promise isn't directed to us as individuals. It's meant for the whole people of God. Jeremiah 29.11, the you isn't singular, it's plural. You who are exiles, who are suffering in this very moment and long to be home. I know the plans I have for you, all of you. I know what I'm doing. I'm bringing you into my bigger story. I don't have a better one, so I'm bringing you into mine. You're going to follow the path of my son, a path that includes exile and suffering and trials and hardships, but along the way, a living hope in Jesus and a future hope in heaven. This is not about your own individual dream. It's about my bigger plan. It's not about your little script. It's about my bigger story, a story of redemption, a story of healing, a story of restoration. And when you believe in Jesus and follow Jesus, yes, there will be suffering, but it will be light and momentary compared to the glory that's awaiting you. And as you make your way there, remember you're not alone. You are not alone. We're all in this together. The summer before my senior year of high school, I went on a service trip to the Boundary Waters in Canada. Beautiful place. Beautiful place. Beautiful, clear lakes, wildlife all around. It was incredible. But the purpose of the trip was to bury cable line all throughout the camp in the scorching heat, in the pouring rain. We worked from sunup till sundown, and there were no phones, no watches, no technology, nothing. We were sleeping in bunks, using stinky outhouses. This was majorly roughing it, but it was one of the best weeks of my entire life. The one thing I'll never forget was portaging a canoe. So we were paired up and had to carry a heavy canoe on our backs from one body of water to another, trying to balance it while our feet were slipping in the muddy path along the way. With, with the mosquitoes kind of biting our legs and sweat dripping down our faces. But we had to keep going for one and a half miles, one step at a time, one foot in front of the other. And there was a guide who was in front of us who told us about the beauty of the, of the lake ahead of us. She said that you could actually drink from it. It was so clear and refreshing. And she kept giving us updates as our muscles were aching. Only a half mile left. Only a fourth mile left. And finally, we could see it up ahead. (laughs) Felt like slow motion. (laughs) There it is. There it is. And once we made it, man, we could hardly contain ourselves. A bunch of us just jumped right into the lake and started drinking from it. (laughs) And it, it was actually really cold. And so we didn't stay in there too long. And then after drying off, all we had were peanut butter sandwiches. But I tell you what, we ate those to the glory of God. And I'll never forget that moment because we came together. Listen, we came together through suffering. 
We were united through our suffering. And it made the ending all the more sweeter. The same is true for us. We're exiles here, suffering together as we make our way home. And so maybe it's time. Maybe it's time for you and me to burn the script. The script for how we saw our lives going and to live into God's bigger and better story for our lives. Let's pray. Father, you know our stories because you are the author and the perfecter, the finisher of our stories. And you have seen to it to bring us into your greater story, your bigger story of redemption and hope. God, it's so easy in our lives to look at our suffering, to look at the trials, to look at the, uh, the script that's become something we never thought it would be and to want to run back to what we used to have. And you, you tell us, be present now in what I'm doing in your life. You can trust me. You can lean on me. I know you. I know what you need. I have a future and hope for you. So help us to trust you today and help us to unite together in our suffering as we make our way home to glory forever. In Jesus' name, amen.